Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder Program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast, and you can find the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the show, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. And we also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. Send those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. It wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with a practical way to bring your faith into public life through our bricklayer segment. That's laying the bricks that build the bridge between faith and public life. In today's episode, we're talking about religious liberty, its roots and its relationship it has between the individual believer and their roles and responsibility vis-a-vis the state. In our mailbag segment, we have a question from a student asking about getting involved in politics even when students under 18 cannot vote. And stick around for our Bricklayer segment where we preview an important day of prayer for creation and how you can get friends and fellow parishioners involved. Right now, we're joined on the line by Dr. Robert Lewis Wilkin. Dr. Wilkin is a distinguished fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and professor of history, the history of Christianity at the University of Virginia. He received his doctorate from the University of Chicago and has taught at many prestigious universities throughout the world, including the Gregorian and the Augustinianum in Rome, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Notre Dame Fordham, and Lutheran Theological Seminary. Dr. Wilkin is the author of 10 books, including Liberty and the Things of God, the Christian Origins of Religious Freedom, which is what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wilkin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. We talk a lot on our Bridge Builder program about religious liberty. Uh, your book is entitled Liberty and the Things of God. What, what do you mean by that exactly? Why is it liberty and the things of God important for both individual Christians and the Church? Well, the, the phrase comes from a 17th century writer. Uh, it was a time when there was great dispute about uh, the freedom of Christians, because by that time the churches had divided, and so, in contrast to what had been the case for a thousand years, you had communities all over Europe where you not only had, in most cases, an established church, which was really the official church of the city or the territory or even the country, and then you had these dissenting groups, um, whether they be uh, some of the first dissenters, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, then the Anabaptists, and then they gradually became uh, more diverse. So it was a real issue um, for centuries. Uh, everybody in a city or territory observed the same religion, which meant that they had the same calendar, uh, they had the same rituals, uh, they had the same leaders, bishops uh, and uh, priests, and now that was changed. And so um, division, religious division, ran down the main street of the communities. And so it was in that context that Christian thinkers, both those who were on the oppression oppression side and those who were seeking their freedom, had to deal with the question of whether people could practice a religion that was not what was officially accepted by the political and religious leaders of the community. So that's why it arose. 
that arose then. That's why it took its formulation then that then influenced later thinkers. Now, many believe that religious liberty is an modern invention that took root as a response to the Reformation or the Thirty Years' War or even the Enlightenment, but your book tells the story of uh, religious liberty having a longer pedigree in Christian history. Say a little bit about its origins and, and kind of the premise of your book, uh, particularly in light of the Church Fathers, which is your area of expertise. Well, uh, I'm glad you put it that way, because it was just um, serendipitous that a very distinguished political historian and commentator on foreign policy wrote uh, about a year ago a column in the Washington Post called The Strong Men Strike Back. And he says, only with the advent of Enlightenment liberalism, that means late, basically the 18th century, did people begin to believe that the individual conscience as well as the individual's body should be inviolate and protected from the intrusions of state and church. Well, Mr. Kagan is wrong. Uh, it's disappointing to realize that he still is living with that uh, false historical view. And so the book that I wrote is an attempt to try to show what the actual origins are of the modern understanding of religious liberty, the kind of understanding that's represented in our founding documents, and in particularly the great English philosopher John Locke, who everybody turns to because he had a he wrote a book called Letter on Toleration. So the story that I have to tell goes back to the third century, but even earlier than that, it goes back to the scriptures. But the first to really express. The idea, which then is picked up over the centuries, and especially during the Reformation and the years after, is this. He says, this is Tertullian of Carthage. It is only just and a privilege inherent in human nature that every person should be able to worship, according to his own convictions, the religious practice of one person neither harms nor helps another. It is not the part of religion to coerce religious practice, for it is by choice, not coercion, that we should be led to religion. Now, Tertullian wrote that in a little treatise, we call them apologies, that is, defenses of Christianity, to the governor of the province that he was living in in North Africa, where Carthage was located. It was then picked up by people who, and basically he's trying to defend the rights of Christians. But of course, there were no laws that protected them because the Romans made their own laws about religion and they didn't have this idea. So that passage and then a passage by another Christian writer who's not as well known as Tertullian, Lactantius. Lactantius said, religion cannot be coerced. And it happens, now, what, after they wrote these Things. This was before Christianity was victorious and actually then became the religion of the Roman world after Constantine. And basically, what they had written was forgotten, except for some lonely figures along the way. The idea was one that was deeply rooted in Christianity because it's rooted in the Bible, namely, uh, as you read in Psalm 51, that is, it is the heart, the contrite heart that God desires. It's not interested in your external action, but your heart. And so it was remembered 
but it didn't really have much of an impact. I, I give some examples in the Middle Ages. Another factor that came in was that this notion that religion was personal and was subjective, it was within, was then complemented by the Christian understanding of conscience. And so conscience then came to be a privileged territory within the human breast that no one could interfere with. And so Thomas Aquinas, for example, has uh, a lot to say about conscience, as do other medieval writers. But it didn't have much of an impact because the whole society was Christian. But what happened in the 16th century with the beginning of the Reformation, some people began to find, as they read the ancient books, this passage from Tertullian, another one from Lactantius. And they read that and they said, well, this applies to our own situation. Uh, the most famous case, uh, John Calvin was the leading theologian and churchman in the city of Geneva. They, the city officials, executed a man by the name of Servetus because he had denied the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, another man by the name of Castellio wrote a little treatise in which he said that there was no way in which Christians could justify executing somebody on religious ground, and he quoted Lactantius at length. So these passages then began to be repeated in writer after writer after writer. There were some other things that happened, very interesting, in um, the city of Nuremberg, which is not too far from Wittenberg. There was an Augustinian community there, and the leader of that community had gotten to know some of the writings of Luther, and so he, he was very sympathetic. But when the city became Lutheran, the Lutheran leaders began to close the monasteries. And they not only closed them, they went in and they sent in preachers to try to convince the poor sisters. And the poor sisters then had to listen. In fact, the one writer, the abbess of the community, says they had to listen to 111 sermons. So the sisters, being very clever, stuffed cotton in their ears so they didn't have to hear the, the sermons. So she writes a little treatise in which she appeals to conscience, which is exactly what Lutheran did when he was being persecuted by the Catholic authorities. And she says, and one of our other sisters says, is that here I stand. You cannot force me, and I will not obey what you require of me. So what you see there is the way in which this idea that goes way back to Tertullian is now resurfacing and then becomes widespread. So that's one stage in the history um, of the rise of religious freedom. Another factor was the rise of the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were the most radical of the reformers, the so-called magisterial reformers, that is, the Lutherans and the Calvinists. They did not like the Anabaptists because they were, Anabaptists means to rebaptize, because they did not believe in infant baptism. And they not only rejected infant baptism, which meant that they rebaptized people who joined their communities, which is completely against all earlier Christian tradition, but they, they began to form their own religious sects with their own clergy. 
So in other words, it wasn't just individuals. It was now you had religious communities, small religious communities, who were dissenting from the public religion in the cities. And from that came the idea that there were really two realms. There was a realm of the church, and there was a realm of the state. And they did not have, they had very little to do with one another. And very specifically, that the state authorities could not impose what they considered to be the true religion on these religious communities. And that's where we get the basic notion of separation of church and state. It it really goes back to Christian ideas. I mean, even in France, the the Reformation in France was basically uh, among the Calvinists. Lutherans did not make it very far in France. And it became so serious that there were religious wars. This would be in the 1660s and uh, 1560s and 1570s. And a very wise statesman, who really was the person who advised uh, the crown, said, religion and public policy have to be kept separate. You can't see them as one infecting the other. Well, then what happens... I mean, you want to just keep talking on? you have any questions? <laughs> well, I certainly didn't want to uh, jump in on that very uh, fascinating yeah, of summary of the history, but it, it seems that, that there is some truth to the idea, though, that what uh, happened during the Reformation and the, the products of that, the conflicts that emerged, and the historical challenges there, that uh, it, it compelled Christian thinkers to dig deeper into the sources of Christian history and recover some of these ideas to address their own particular unique needs and challenges at those particular times. So it, it seems to be it, there is a truth to the idea that Reformation and the post-Counter-Reformation, these sorts of things, did bring out and re-help some of these traditions of religious liberty emerge. And if that is the case, then I'd say, well, then, you know, is is it really a phenomenon uh, that helped that Protestantism really brought out? Or what, what happened in that medieval Catholic period? Well, no, that's period? the whole point of the book. The point of the book is that the tradition of the freedom, the liberty of conscience, and that religion is an inner disposition of the soul, is one that's rooted in earlier Christianity and in the Scriptures. It's very clear, you read Paul, you read the Psalms, that it is the, the heart, the inner spiritual soul of people, which is the seat of religion. It's not primarily, even though it includes that, about external rituals. So without the earlier tradition, the earlier text, the very specific text, it's unlikely that this would have happened. But it is true that it took the divisions of the 16th century to expose the problem in a way which was not apparent throughout the Middle Ages. Now, St. Augustine is... I'm sorry. St. Augustine yes. has played a major role in Christian political thought with uh, his book, The City of God, and this idea that there are two cities, the city of God and the city of man. But that seems to have led uh, to a different understanding of Christianity and the church and its relationship to the state and the political community, even though it seems also consistent with the idea that there is a should be a legitimate separation of church and state. How did how did that all come about, and what influence? Well, and Augustine, impact? curiously, in this particular matter, is not a major figure, 
but he is a figure. And there are two sets of sources in Augustine. The one is his dealing with the Donatists. The Donatists were, of course, a um, schismatic group in North Africa, and they caused much, much uh, trouble for Augustine as bishop as well as other bishops. And Augustine found that they could not be persuaded, that is, to come back to Catholic Christianity. And so when persuasion proved futile, and he discovered that force worked, he then called upon the state authorities to constrain the Donatists. Originally, his opinion was that no one should be forced to the unity of Christ, but that we should act with words, fight with arguments, and conquer by reason. But when the Donatists then continued to press, he brought in the Church. However, if you read then in his sermons, there's a very troubling passage in Luke 14. Whomever you find, compel them to come in. That's the story of the, the banquet, and uh, everybody had begged off, and so the the host sent his servants into the streets to people to come in, and he says, the host says to them, compel them to come in. And that was a problem for Origen. It sounded like that was a way to get people into the church, and Augustine said, well, that's not really what the word compel there means. It was something that was done in a more gentle way. And then he goes on, and he makes this statement here. He says, you can't you can't force a person to believe. You can force a person to be baptized, but you can't force them to be believed. He says, with the heart, one believes in the love of God. So Augustine can be enlisted on the side of religious freedom, but most people who read about Augustine only know the other side, the side where he compels the donors. So, but Augustine, city of God, of course, it's very clear that there are two cities. That's the whole point of the book. The point is that there is an earthly city, and there is a heavenly city. And the two have certain things in common, but in the deepest sense, they are two cities which have completely different goals and aims. So Augustine can be enlisted on on the side of, of the division. But let me just go on just a bit more. So what happens, in a sense, the story moves to England, which had become, of course, uh, Anglican, and under Queen Elizabeth and the, especially the dissenters, what we call the Puritans today, were were badly persecuted as well as well as well as were the Catholics, <clears throat> and so here is where you begin to have a kind of a, a militant Anabaptist tradition, and it's eventually simply called Baptist, and a number of writers then in the early 17th century, Baptist writers, one man by the name of Helwes, but most important, Roger Williams, who came and settled in Rhode Island. They really drive the argument hard. And um, that English tradition of the division between the state authority and the religious authority, based on the premise that religion is an inner disposition, then begins to take hold, especially in the English-speaking world. And along comes in John Locke, who's a philosopher at the end of the 17th century, very important, had enormous influence 
on the founding fathers. And he wrote a treatise, I think I mentioned this before, it's called The Letter on Toleration. And in The Letter on Toleration, he makes two points. One is that religion is an inner disposition, and that the ends of government and the ends of religion have to be kept distinct from one another. And it's Locke, then, who becomes the source for the founding fathers. But Locke is working with ideas that have been in play for centuries. No, I just want to jump in and say, if there's liberty in the things of God, what about for unbelievers or Satanists, for example? I think people have a, a trouble drawing the line between liberty and license to say, well, if we're going to allow religious freedom for some groups, and if religion is merely a subjective interior disposition of things that we believe about the creator or the supernatural, then how do we make principled distinctions about where we give religious freedom and allow for religious liberty and where we don't. How would you respond to that? Well, you make a, you make a, you raise an interesting question because uh, in that sense, the title is a little bit misleading because it mentions the word God. But the logic of the argument means that whatever one's convictions are, they have to be respected. And it's very interesting. Uh, uh, these are people of God. But in the 17th century, there's one writer, Martin Helwes, who I discussed at, at some length in the book, and he's a Baptist, and he can't stand the Catholics. I mean, really, has nothing but contempt for Catholics and their rituals. He says that this principle, that religion is an inner disposition, applies to Catholics as well as to us Baptist Protestants, but also to Jews and Muslims. In fact, that probably is the most striking passage that I quote in the book, this early 17th century writer. So, you know, if you believe things that are not religious but still have them deep in your heart, these have to be respected as well. It doesn't have to be about God. But I think you make a decent point, namely that um, one can conclude from that that it only applies to religious people, but no, it doesn't. But I don't discuss that. Now, many people... I was, I was getting to Tertullian, I mean, to Locke, and the most, not Locke, but Locke had influenced uh, Jefferson and Madison and by a strange quirk. Thomas Jefferson wrote a book called, um, on, on the, the state of Virginia, really, and he has a section on religion in there. And he has a passage in which he says that religion cannot be coerced and that one person's religion doesn't hurt another. If you can pick, pick my, my pocket, it hurts me. But if you uh, believe something else, it doesn't hurt me. In his own personal copy of this, this book, um, State of Virginia, he quotes the passage from Tertullian at the bottom of the page, his own personal copy, in Latin. So he knew the passage from Tertullian. Now, I don't think that he knew it when he wrote that book. And I don't think Tertullian had any direct influence on it. But it's clear that when he learned about this, and I was not able to find out how I wrote to top Jefferson scholars around the country, but no one seemed to know. But clearly, when he found this passage, he realized it supported what he believed. So there's a very interesting then, um, kind of relation between Tertullian and Thomas Jefferson, of all things. 
Now, many people believe that the church, Dr. Wilkin, is an enemy of freedom. And, you know, like the uh, person you quoted earlier talking about the Enlightenment, and it was the first advent of toleration and non-coercion by the state, that history is, uh, Christian history is this long strain of oppression, coercion, the Inquisition, um, the medieval period uh, where there was supposedly no freedom of religion. But the real story is that the church has never believed that uh, baptism should be, uh, or that faith should be coerced. Is, is that, you know, how do we, how do we dispel some well, of the myths? Of course, myths about... that's exactly, the, the, the truth is that people who say the kind of thing that you're just mentioning are ignorant. They've never really studied, the, they come with their own prejudices. Clearly, the Church has done many things to persecute and oppress people who believe differently. But century after century after century, there were always writers who defended what was the more authentic and early and traditional Christian view, namely that religion cannot be coerced. And that's why it's so significant that this then became the basis for the whole modern understanding of religious freedom. So, I mean, when when people say that kind of thing, they're just ignorant. And there's a lot of ignorance in the scholarly world. Well, you've helped underscore the importance of history in dispelling some of the myths and having a deeper understanding of our own best traditions and how those apply into important debates like religious freedom and religious liberty. Uh, we've been blessed to speak with Dr. Robert Lewis Wilkin, Distinguished Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and Professor of History of Christianity at the University of Virginia. His book is Liberty in the Things of God, and you've gotten a really a great preview about some of the very interesting stories uh, he has to tell about the a genealogy of religious liberty in Christian thought. Dr. Wilkin, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. My pleasure. Thank and, you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag. What question have you got for us today, Kit? Yeah, so this week we've got a question from a school-age student. She says she knows that it's important for Catholics to get involved in politics, but she wants to know whether it's okay to not get involved just yet. She doesn't feel ready. So, Jason, maybe you could provide some of our younger listeners, or especially parents who are listening, some advice on how Catholics of all ages can begin to live out their faith in the public arena, even though they might not be old enough to vote. Well, uh, the the writer is wise beyond his or her years and uh, saying, well, you need to be well-formed and informed uh, before you go out and try to influence public life. So the first step, of course, is to form your conscience, but you can do that. Um, uh, you don't have to be 18 to start forming your conscience and understanding the relevant principles uh, that are building the bricks of the common good in public life. And so I think the first thing is, is age is important. And Aristotle said that people shouldn't get involved in politics until they're 40, uh, precisely because wisdom is, comes through experience in many instances. But in, in our society, we can vote at 18, uh, but you still don't need to be 18 to be involved. And if you take the time to inform yourself, if you use your time wisely, as a young person and and avoid some pursuits and engage others, uh, intellectual pursuits, informing yourself about key issues, then certainly feel free to make your voice heard. And the best way to do that is form your conscience with the right principles 
then apply those principles to the key issues of the day and then make your voice heard. So you don't have to be 18 to let your legislator know uh, what you think about uh, important public policy questions. The easiest way to do that, write a letter to the editor, write a letter to your legislator or congressperson or senator, and let him or her know what you think about important issues. One way you can do that, of course, is to join the Minnesota Catholic Conference Catholic Advocacy Network. With your parents' permission, you can have updates sent to your email as a young person and then let your legislator know with a click of a mouse what you think about important questions. We also have great resources at our election page website, mncatholic.org slash election. So even though you can't vote, young people can still make their voice heard. But there was a lot of wisdom and prudence, I think, in the writer's question, the sense that it's important to be prepared and well-formed before participating so that you are, in fact, building up the good. Wonderful. And what might we have in this week's bricklayer segment? I know you kind of just touched on some things, but how else might people start to bridge that gap between faith and public life? So coming up on September 1st is the fifth annual World Day of Prayer for the Care of Creation. In 2015, Pope Francis established this day of prayer. In his letter, he stated, The annual World Day of Prayer for the Care of Creation will offer individual believers and communities a fitting opportunity to reaffirm their personal vocation to be stewards of creation. And that's not something Pope Francis just made up. It's right at the very beginning of the Bible in in terms of the gifts and responsibilities that God gave to Adam and Eve. The Minnesota Catholic Conference encourages individuals, small groups, and parishes to prepare for this day by using the document Minnesota, Our Common Home. This was our local translation of the very long encyclical from Pope Francis Laudato Si into a bite-sized format and applied to our local context. So Minnesota, Our Common Home, is a great place to learn about the principles taught in Laudato Si without having to jump into that full 175-page document. Visit us at mncatholic.org slash ourcommonhome to download or order the original document, a study guide version, and an ecological examine. Over the six-week study, you or a small group will explore key principles discussed in Pope Francis' encyclical Laudato Si on the care of our common home and propose how we might translate those principles into our present times as Minnesotans. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder. Listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send those comments and questions to show at mncatholic.org and then tune in next week to see if your comment or question comes up in the mailbag. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest more of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.